Very good, everybody. Good to see everyone. Let's see if this thing is on. Yep, yep, yep. Well, let's pray, and we will get started today. Father, uh, Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy, gathering us all here together, Lord. Uh, we thank you, Lord, today for the family of God. <clears throat> thank you, Father, that we can gather together with a like, a like faith and like mind, that we can um, fellowship over the things that you have revealed and uh, over the things that you have done in our lives, and we thank you for that. And, Lord, we give you all praise and glory and honor uh, for saving us, for redeeming us, for giving us hope, for giving us uh, peace with God, for reconciling us to yourself. And uh, we just thank you for the blessing that is justification. We pray that you'd help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, if you would, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 18. I thought... Uh, and Chris, make sure that make sure that's fired up um, up there for me. Uh, Luke 18. I thought what we would do is look at a passage that gives us in a parable um, what justification is like and what it ought to look like in the life of a of a person, uh, in the life of a sinner. And here Jesus gives us a glorious, glorious. Uh, parable so that we can comprehend the nature of of justification in the life of somebody who is unworthy that is all of us and uh, how it plays out in real time and space so uh, would somebody read this for me Uh, this is uh, Luke 18 beginning in verse 9 you go all the way down to verse 14 Um, so Jonathan go ahead And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was not even was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating on but but was beating his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's very good. Um, only one minor. Uh, observation there when you read the text at, at the end of verse 13 subconsciously because I know you're such a good reader you just you got it but you read um, you read be merciful to me a sinner right that's, King James. <laughs> that's kicking in right I know <laughs> but the literal Greek has it with the article which means it would be the sinner which is very powerful because the, art, the article there serves uh, the purpose of emphasis. And what it's pointing out is that this individual was essentially saying like what Paul would say of himself, that he was the foremost, that he was the chief of sinners. He's the sinner, right? Uh, that's what this person is saying is there's no, no greater sinner than me. Essentially, that's what he's saying. But notice the context of what's going on here. Um, Jesus tells this parable because... He was aware of his surroundings. In verse 9, he told this parable 
uh, to some people who were trusting or who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So right there, that sets the stage for the doctrine of justification. How is man righteous, right? Uh, is it based on self-merit? And obviously, Jesus' audience consisting of scribes and Pharisees and people who would observe the law, th- that would be people that would want to try to be justified by the works of the law. And so this is kind of a, a parable out of which launches books like Romans, <laughs> Galatians, right? And that's really what's going on here. This is Jesus teaching in everyday vernacular to people who happened to be around him, right? The theology that he would reveal through his prophets in a much more uh, critical didactic fashion through the epistles, through the letters. So so that's the context. The context is self-righteous people that think they are righteous in themselves, that they have enough moral merit to justify themselves. So here's a question for you. How practical, therefore, knowing this, how practical is the, do- the doctrine of justification? Now that you see this, do you know anybody who's self-righteous? Right? I, know, I know you would say, well, I'm self-righteous, right? But, but what about any co-workers or family members who are self-righteous, who try to justify themselves, right? This is one of my favorite parables to use at UNT when I'm talking to, to students who are trusting in themselves. I bring them to this and say, look, if you never get to the point where you understand how bankrupt you are before God, if you never get to the point where you can admit your, your, your sin and your misery in the eyes of God, then you never will understand the gospel. Because as Jesus said, I came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. So if you continue to try to justify yourself and think that you have enough inherent self-righteousness, then the gospel of free and sovereign grace will never make any sense. Right? Because you think I already have what it offers. And uh, that's exactly what he's saying. But notice, the, notice the, um, the situation, too, that obviously you have a, a, you have a Pharisee, and you have a tax collector. You have a religious person, and then you have a tax collector, which was you know, the equivalent of modern-day lawyers. Well, some of them. Shysters, right? Just swindlers. This, the tax collectors was like a derogatory type of a term, really. I mean, uh, in Scripture, can you think... Um, can you think of anywhere where a tax collector is mentioned in a derogatory fashion other than this passage? Yeah. Well, I don't remember where it is, but when he talks about Jesus eating or having lunch or dinner with the tax Right, right. Yeah, I don't know exactly where that is, but <clears throat> essentially that's what it's saying is, you know, uh, that he, he hung out with the lowest of the low, right? One of them being the tax collectors. But remember the context of church discipline? If a person refuses to repent, you are to treat them like a tax collector, which means you're to teach them as a, as a completely uh, untrustworthy person, somebody that can't be trusted. So anyway, amazing. Jesus even uses the, the euphemism in this way, right? Zacchaeus. So, huh? Zacchaeus. Okay. Short guy that ran off the tree. Mm-hmm. That's right. Why they're going to eat with <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, just just the um, the point that we need to make to people is especially in verse uh, thirteen 
you know, the tax collector standing some distance away, unlike the Pharisee who thinks that he's done everything morally right, the tax collector stands a distance away, which means that he felt himself ostracized. He knew his condition. He knew his guilt. He knew his sinfulness before God and man. And so he even stayed at a distance from the rest of the religious people that were, that were uh, uh, engaging in prayer at the temple. And it says that he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. I think that's a very powerful imagery to, to paint in front of people, you know. And so I love to, to use this parable in evangelism to say, look, this is, if you, if you can't get in touch with this tax collector, if there's nothing within you that resonates the type of guilt this man feels, well, then A, you don't understand what sin is, number one. Number two, you don't understand how holy God is, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and therefore we need to use this to try to press them upon it. And then, again, you know, he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. So this is the way that justification plays out. Justification accompanies true conversion, true repentance and faith. And so use this uh, when you're dealing with people and uh, uh, talking to them about this. Uh, but, you know, I want to begin today by just commending you guys for coming back. <laughs> I was thinking about this as I was putting together uh, the lesson for this justification. I thought, justification part three. And I didn't even get that right. I still, I'm, I'm in the Old Testament. We're, we're in the New Testament today. But I thought, you know, um, in our culture where everything is so fast-paced, um, I mentioned this on my podcast that um, if news is not today or yesterday, it's old, it's passe, it's, it's over, right? People want what's relevant immediately. What happened today? If it's not on Twitter or Facebook yesterday, right? It's old news. Oh, that happened last year. I mean, it becomes irrelevant so quickly. And, uh, and then the type of information that we're taking in in our culture today, 140 characters. Uh, Trish and I are talking to an atheist guy on Twitter. And we're supposed to be having this argument back and forth. And, okay, I don't tweet, okay? And so she puts me on this tweeter, this Twitter thing. And I'm just like, you know, I can't say anything meaningful in 140 characters. Who invented this worthless thing? <laughs> you know, of course, but our, our society thrives on it. You know, we thrive on just saying what we need to say and then leaving it at that, right? Or whatever. Uh, so it just reminds me of the, of the proverb that says in Proverbs 1, 7, fools despise wisdom and they despise instruction. Uh, we really are living, I think, in that time where doctrinal, doctrinal emphasis, doctrinal specificity, whatever you want to call it, is at an all-time low. I mean, people want anything else. I mean, talk about a church. I mean, people want, obviously, all of the... The, the, the felt needs to be met. They want the recovery programs. They want the small group programs. They want, you know, they want the cool band and the hip worship leader. And they want all of that. And they want the stage and the lights and the camera action. But they don't want doctrine. <laughs> and um, it's sad. So I commend you for, uh, for coming back, for sure, and for persevering with me through these lessons. Uh, again, uh, the order salutis, that's where we're at. We're at justification and just before adoption. 
we're still looking at the doctrine of justification. We looked at the Old Testament, and especially we looked at the forensic nature of this doctrine. That's what the emphasis has to be. I want to drill that home to you today, uh, that above everything, you learn the legal nature of the doctrine of justification. And so to go even further now with this, uh, we shift to the New Testament, and I want to look at the relevant word group that you're going to find there. These are the terms that you're going to find in association with the doctrine of justification. You're going to find dikaio, uh, which is a dikaio uh, is a verb. It means to justify, and then you have a series of nouns or adjectives. Uh, like dikaios, which means to be just, which means justice, uh, dikaiosis, which means justification. That's the word, uh, for example, in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 4 that says Jesus was raised for our justification. It is justification, dikaiosis, and then the term righteousness, because that is a major term, just like we saw, just like we saw uh, and well, no, in, in Luke chapter 18, that's actually the verb. He went home justified. That's dikaio. That's the word that Jesus, uh, that, that the Gospels record there. Dikaiosune just simply means to be righteous, to be just. And that is really the aim of justification, is how can we be dikaiosune before God, in the presence of God? How can we be declared dikaiosune? That's really what it is. So uh, just a quick word on, uh, uh, on word study. Um, so if you're wanting to study a subject, but you don't have any of the relevant terms, is it still possible to do a study on the subject? Yes, some of you are seeing heads go like this. <laughs> yes, it is, uh, because, <laughs> sorry, Maddie. <laughs> but, but yeah, but this is a common error that we can make in thinking that if the word itself is not found, then the concept is not found. But we have to remember that this is where a context is key because we have to determine what context are we in in order to determine whether or not the doctrine of justification is something that is relevant to that text. Um, uh, so first, let's, let's, let's just look at uh, the first word, which is dikaiao. So um, again, dikaiao speaks of a person um, being vindicated in his character. And so Matthew 12, 37, for example, it speaks of a person being vindicated in his character, uh, of having a moral character, in other words, that is in keeping with God's law. It has this usage, okay, this usage. So, for example, in Matthew 12, 37, you remember there the people, they dikaiao God, they justified God, which means something like they believed God. They saw that God and his righteousness was in keeping with his moral demands, that he actually had a character that was trustworthy because it was in keeping with God's moral demands. So another one, look at, uh, let's look at Romans 3, 4, for example, just to see this. This is not really one of the major uses. This is just kind of showing you the, um, the semantical range of the word, meaning the possible meanings that this word can have. Uh, Romans 3, 4, it says, May it never be, Re uh, rather let God be true, though every man would be found a liar. And then this is the text that he uses to substantiate that, that you, that is God, may be justified in your words 
and prevail when you judge. So in other words, this is speaking about God's moral vindication, his moral vindication. And that is one possible way that the word can be used. Now, <clears throat> another way that we can look at this word is, and really the essence of the doctrine of justification is brought to bear in these meanings right here. So I thought for this meaning, which means, means the legal declaration that the conditions of the law have been met. Let's go to Acts chapter 13, because there you see it um, in the missionary life of Paul, and you kind of see it in action, in other words. So Acts 13, beginning in verse 38, um, says, says that much, basically meeting the moral requirement of the law. It says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, uh, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, ironically, ironically here, um, the ESV and the NASB do not have the most literal translation, because you see that word freed, right? And ironically, the more literal translation of this word um, uh, falls to the NIV, to the New King James, and to the Net Bible, among others. And because the word that's used here for freed, do you have a, a, a footnote in the margin, maybe for that word, right? It means what? Justified. To be justified. <laughs> Amazing. Right? It says, through him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. So there you see that through faith, a person meets the moral requirements of the law. Something that could not be given to you uh, apart from faith in, in Christ. Yes, sir? Is there a reason for using breathe, you know? Like what's the what's the mindset of a the translators of a very literal word-for-word word using basically a translation there? They're they're translating it to something. Sometimes they don't want to do uh, the interpretation for you, and so they might render it general or generic, right? Um, because it can have this meaning, okay? Uh, sometimes they let you do the work. Uh, so that's a possible philosophy behind why they decided to translate it like this. But I think the NIV got it right. <laughs> I think that's the way it should have been translated. It's just because it's such a powerful word. I mean, you know, justification is such a huge term that, I mean, when it's present in the Bible, we should know about it. You know, and so I think, you know, whatever, for whatever reason they decide to do that, at the end of the day, I don't think it's very helpful. But I don't know any further as far as the philosophy behind that, why they did that. I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe just to show you a couple other verses, look at uh, Galatians 3.11. Galatians 3.11. And uh, I go to Galatians just because there's a couple there's a couple passages in Galatians. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Again, this idea of meeting the moral requirements of God's law. It says, Now that no one is justified by the law, before God, is evident. I like that because not only there do you have the, the, the word justification, and then you see the denial 
of works. And there, the denial of works is by the law, right? By the law. And obviously, what he means there is something like through the instrumentality of the law. But then he uses the word before God. And I like that because that stresses our accountability before God, really the tribunal of God, standing in the presence of God. Uh, Paul uses this uh, phrase, before God, when he wants to stress the judgment of God. And so he uses it, for example, in 2 Corinthians, uh, in, in different, different places, I think chapter 4, chapter 6, he uses it to stress that our ministry has been before God that we have been speaking. So basically saying, look, we do this knowing our accountability, knowing uh, that we will be judged by God for what we say, right? It really stresses our accountability to God. And that's why he uses this phrase, be for God. Now, uh, chapter five, verse four, a similar thing. It says, you have been severed from Christ. This is uh, Galatians 5, 4. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That's a remarkable, remarkable uh, phrase right there because the context there is circumcision. So Paul is saying there, like, if you seek out circumcision as the sign of the covenant to show your covenant faithfulness to God, you've actually fallen from grace. Isn't that amazing how it works in God's uh, economy? This is the difference between abiding moral law and something like what's called positive law, which is law that is put forth for a specific time for a specific purpose, like circumcision. There was a time that if you did not, uh, uh, if, the, if the covenant community did not obey the sign of circumcision, they would be uh, uh, sinning. They would be uh, in a place where they would be uh, breaching the covenant. And now... That law has run its course, it's fulfilled its purpose, so that now if you seek to be in covenant with God through circumcision, now it is tantamount to falling from grace. Isn't that amazing? So the same thing could be said about possibly the dietary laws, right? There was a time that if you did not keep yourself uh, pure through your diet, right, it was also a break in, in the covenant, and you would be guilty of transgression if you ate shrimp and Praise God that God made that part of his positive law. Because <laughs> I love shrimp <laughs> and lobster and crab and everything else. Did you guys see they're opening an aw shucks up here? Yeah. You guys know what that is? Anybody know what that is? No. Huh? It's a restaurant. Uh-huh. What kind of restaurant? Yeah, that's right. Well, now they bring out crab legs by the pound. You just tell them how much you want. They just bring pounds and pounds of crab. Anyway. <laughs> Praise God that we're in the new covenant. <laughs> right? So what was wrong with it in the old covenant? Was it health rise? That's a good question. I mean, I, stuff they do now? it could have some, it could have, you know, uh, hygienical, you know, type purposes and, you know, health reasons and stuff like that. I think ultimately it was for the purpose of separation, uh, just to be distinct, right, from the people of God. And Some of stuff to idols too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. How many of you have Christian tattoos in here? 
Come on, don't be shy. Don't be shy, it's okay. We won't get, we're not going to stone you. We're in the new covenant, remember? <laughs> right? Well, yeah, I mean, look at that. I mean, you know, I mean, there is that principle in the old covenant where you sh- you're not supposed to carve in your skin. Oh, that's not talking about tattoos. Well, okay, I get it. But I bet you if you did that under the old covenant, they would certainly think it qualified. They wouldn't think like, oh, that's just a cool tattoo. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're carving and bleeding your skin. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not trying. Listen, you're free, <laughs> okay, in Christ. I would get a tattoo, but I'm too chicken. <laughs> I don't want to feel the pain. That's just what it boils down to. So you're a lot braver than I am. Yes, ma'am. Yes? A Christian tattoo. Yeah, that's right. I would get a Christian tattoo, uh, Cassandra. And for the people in here, I'd probably get a real teeny, teeny, tiny one that no one can see. <laughs> I'm glad more kids aren't in here. Okay, let's go to uh, <laughs> the, the, the fundamentalist folks are just like, whew, glad we're not fundamentalists anymore. <laughs> All right, so none of those things affect our justification. Praise God. Uh, so the third use is here is really clarified by the antithesis of the context, right? So let's, let's look at Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is also very interesting because you're going to see that in terms of your hope, in terms of your assurance, your, your comfort in Christ, it has everything to do with uh, forensic language, legal language. I hope that comforts you. Because that's the way that Paul is using it to comfort you. If you don't understand the legality of your comfort, we could say the forensic nature of Christian assurance, then let me read it to you here. This is uh, verses 33 and 34. It says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he, uh, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So right there, I mean, this, pa- this passage is jam-packed with forensic language. Uh, this word, to charge somebody, to bring a prosecution, is what he's saying. Who can prosecute you as a Christian? And then it says, of course, he uses the word dikaiao. Uh, God is the one who justifies. And then this other term, um, Katakrino, which we get the word judgment from, right? Who is the one that passes judgment over you, right? Who is the one who is going to condemn you? And then the legal language goes on because look at this phrase that is used here. It says that Jesus was raised and that he is now what? At the right hand of God. How is that legal? Because it's literally Jesus taking his heavenly session in heaven where he's at God's right hand judging the, uh, the living and the dead. He's taking his seat as the king, as the judge of the universe, right? And, 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 and here we go. So um, not only is he king, but what else is he in this passage? Priest. Priest. Because he what? Intercedes for us. That's right. So there you get some of the offices, the threefold offices of Christ prophet, priest, and king. In this case, priest and king. Um, I'm trying to think, where is where would be the prophet part? But that's okay. That's a, I don't want to go on a rabbit trail. Let's go on. Any questions about that? But you think about that, like where does our assurance 
as believers, where does that come from? It comes from the legality of the fact that, again, this divine pronouncement has been made that you are now justified in the sight of God, that because of the things that Jesus has done, you can be declared righteous before God. You are no longer condemned. No one can bring a charge against you. That's incredible for your Christian life, that no one can condemn you, right, if you're in Christ. No condemnation. He just got done saying that in uh, the beginning of chapter 8. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, any questions, comments, insights, so just observations? Even when our own hearts condemn us, mm. we need to remember Very good. these legal things. That's right. Even when we stumble into sin or we, you know, we have to remember that we've been justified. It doesn't mean that we're going to be, I like how Todd Creel puts it, we're not going to be, um, you know, um, what does he say, perfect, but it's the direction yeah. that we're going. Not perfection, but the direction. That's right. Oh yeah, absolutely. To know that legal thing. And then and then it's just obvious, you know, our whole court systems and everything, it's like we borrowed from the mind of God. Yeah. And and from the Bible. Amen. Yeah, man doesn't have a sense of justice apart from God. You know what I mean? Um, you can see that even in uh, and when they do have a sense of justice, it's a very perverted, corrupt, right, demented sense of justice, right? Uh, remember Amen. reconciled 
to God. So maybe we can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just to, to stress this part of it. <clears throat> you see kind of a dual, a dual understanding here. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what he understands by reconciliation. He says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see that? So part of reconciliation is that we become dikaiosis. We become justified in the sight of God. We, we take upon the dikaiosune, the righteousness of God in us. Uh, let's see, uh, turn, let's go to Romans 4. Let's go to Romans 4 for another example. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says this, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification he was raised because of our what how, 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 what does that mean um, I think sometimes people read that verse and they kind of they're a little perplexed by it right he was raised um, because of our justification that almost sounds like it's saying because we were justified he was raised <laughs> right it's like the causal element is backwards that's not what he's saying right of course he is saying that that there's a way in which the, the, the uh, resurrection causes our justification. Now explain that to me. How does that happen? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ become a causal agent in our justification? Yes, sir? Well, I think of Second uh, Corinthians, it says that uh, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. First Corinthians. First Corinthians. First Corinthians, yeah, that's a good one. That you're still in your sins. So, I mean, Paul there is, is saying that that is part of the whole process of reconciling men to God. That's the final stamp, I guess. <laughs> that's good. That's, that, that's right. And it almost states the same thing in a different way, but I don't know that it answers, right, uh, how the resurrection causes Justification, Mike. Because of his justification, by his sacrifice, mm. through that, the atonement of Christ, when we are, when we call upon Jesus Christ, we receive that justification through him and in him. Hmm. Okay. So his resurrection. His resurrection. His resurrection declares what he did to Victory. be to be. Uh, I yes, I do very much so. The verse. I don't know where the verse is, but basically that his resurrection <laughs> made um, validated who he was, his life, and then therefore makes our justification valid. But I don't know the verse. I think you're right. You're talking about Romans chapter one, verse four. K Dub is. You, are you there? Yeah. Okay, you can read it. Read. <clears throat> Romans chapter one, verse four. And was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, in power. according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. According Jesus to Christ the, our Lord. 
I think I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago that the when Jesus went into heaven, right? First uh, Corinthians chapter, uh, I think it's chapter fifteen. I think it's verse forty. Uh, what is it? Verse 40, 46 or something. It talks about the, the first and the last Adam, right? Ah, let's turn there so I don't botch it. First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse forty, beginning of verse forty-five. It says, so it is written, the first man, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, a profound thing in itself, right? The first man became a living soul, a nephesh creature that had the spirit of God in him, right? He breathed into Adam and he became a living soul, right? Remarkable. So now we find out what? what the breath of God into Adam was analogous to. And it is analogous to something dealing with the second Adam, right? And what is it? The last Adam, watch this, became a life-giving pneuma, spirit. Amazing. This is not teaching docetism or Gnosticism, right? This is, or docetism especially, that Jesus came back and he was some sort of phantasm walking around like a spirit body, right? That's not what this is saying. This is literally, this is literally referring to Jesus in that state post-death, uh, post uh, in between his, his, his death and his exaltation, in that time dealing with his resurrection, where Jesus in spirit form now, now had the capacity to give life on the basis of his death, on the basis of his resurrection, on the basis of his cross work, he became not just a living soul, but he became a life-giving spirit. Incredible. So uh, <clears throat> when we're thinking about this, and, and back to Romans chapter 1, and then I'll get back to, I saw a hand back there. And, and you get back to Romans chapter 1, it is no <coughs> surprise, therefore, that the spirit is mentioned again in connection with the resurrection. That it, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, right? And it says, uh, by the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Which means that in his resurrection, Jesus achieves the highest state of existence. He reaches his glorified form. He, he reaches the ideal state of man. He goes before us. He became what Adam was intended to be. But he never became that. Right? Yes, sir. What do you think about Romans 8.11? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies Good. through his spirit who dwells in you. Good. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. That's right. So now we're seeing, and I think that's that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what I was trying to get out of all, all of you guys today. It's just, you know, uh, uh, how does the resurrection, how does the resurrection of Christ issue forth in justification? Well, it has to do with the vindication of the Son of God, the fact that upon His resurrection, uh, the the sacrifice and the atonement and the propitiation and 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 the substitution and all of that was accepted by God, right? 
It's the declaration that what, uh, what Christ offered to the Father, the Father accepted as that which is acceptable, right? It merited our righteousness, that's why. And his resurrection is the, is the declaration of that very thing, exactly like Trish said. Can we say that yes, sir. this is a parallel to when Jesus proclaimed it is finished? Sure, I think Jesus was looking ahead at the entire, at the entire scope of redemption that he accomplished on the cross. The very same way that he talks about it in John 17, right? When he talks about, I glorified you, now glorify me. He was looking at the cross work of Christ as a, in a, in a holistic fashion, as a done deal. Uh, life, death, resurrection, boom. The whole work of redemption was done. As far as Jesus was concerned, he had done it. Because it was so certain that it was going to happen, he spoke of it as past tense, which is remarkable. Any other questions, comments, statements, anything? I just like Chris. what you're saying about the resurrection is God accepting the sacrifice or accepting the payment. Because mm-hmm. anybody could just die on a cross, and many okay. people have. Yes, they have. Uh, many supposedly good people may be wrongly, wrongly accused, but yes. God only accepted one payment. You know, so that's, uh, that's just a really good way to look at it. It's a great point. I yes, like, Mike. I like the part where uh, Jesus, we're all sitting around disciples and Jesus, and Jesus asked, who are men right now saying, who, who do men say that I am? Uh-huh. What are they saying about me? And Peter just says, you're the Christ. And I love that. Mm-hmm. And Jesus did too. And he was just, yeah. No question, but no man has revealed that to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, 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 that is his ID card, if you want to say it that way, is identification. <laughs> That's right. Son of the living God. That's right. And just like Adam was called the son of God, Jesus is called the son of God. Right? It's just really amazing. That's why I wrote the book Convert, is because I saw the Adamic theme in Scripture as really binding the whole book of God together. You know what I mean? Adam being the type of Christ, and then Christ typological of Adam, and then you know, the garden themes in the, in, the, uh, in the book of Revelation, just really the tree of life, having access to the tree of life. It's like God in, in his redeeming work and his decrees, he saw all of this, you know, and how he would bind it all together. Don't get me started on biblical theology. I'll never stop, you know. I just stand in awe of it all, you know. I really, really do. Uh, yes, sir? Is, this, is, is it similar to in the redemption process where... In Ephesians, it says that God has now broken down the um, this um, the dividing line, this dividing wall of hostility in His flesh, creating in Himself one new man, making mm-hmm. making the whole world and redeeming things in heaven and things on earth all together through Christ. So is that is that similar to making all, all men um, by declaring them righteous that they are now found in Christ and raised in the heavenly places with him? Is that similar to... Sure, I think it all has to do with it, yeah. To redeem those in the world? Yeah, de- definitely. Absolutely, and, and I think that even that passage right there, I mean, talk about Adam, you know, first and second Adam. I mean, that is first and second Adam language there because just as, you know, and there we have maybe something of a contrast, right? Just as Adam was representing his entire humanity, right? His, his posterity, those whom he would represent, which happens to be the whole human race, 
So to Adam represented his humanity and his posterity so that what God is doing through Christ is assembling a whole new humanity, a whole new race, as Peter talks about in uh, what is it, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says that. He says, you know, that God is making a new race, a holy nation, a new people, a royal priesthood, right? Those are all parallel examples. And where does that all come from? It comes from the initial desire of God to have a people, a humanity of image bearers that will reflect his glory, that he will dwell in their midst, that he will be their, their God and they will be his people. That is, God's, uh, that is God's eternal purpose that he executed in Christ. Really remarkable when you think about what God is doing. You know, um, I have a friend who, I think I've mentioned this before, he does uh, missions and ministry all across the Muslim world, very, very dangerous places, and he's the only person I know that, the, that only thinks globally. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking about, like, how to do small groups and how to put something. <laughs> He's thinking, like, how can I affect the Coptic church? Like, what, what am I going to do in China? And You know, just, like, all he thinks is globally. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like God. God only thinks globally. You know what I mean? Like, what's going on all across the world? I just heard again. Who was I listening to? I was listening to a podcast. I don't know if it was Albert Moeller or somebody. But they were talking about, like, what God's doing in China. You know? And the fact that there's... <laughs> I mean, that they know of at least 100 million Christians in China. And that right now, actually, the Chinese government is cracking down on Christian churches, cracking down on the church. They're coming down. Communism is coming down really hard on the church right now. And, it, and what the Chinese are saying, the Chinese churches, what they're saying is the harder they crack down or the harder they try to crack, crack down on the church, the more Christianity spreads. Could it be that God is going to use homosexuality and Islam to persecute American Christians so that the true church will grow? Don't quote me. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm just saying. <laughs> we don't know. Okay, uh, let's move on to a little bit of church history. Okay, we have 10 minutes to cover church. Look how much time we're going to cover in 10 minutes. <laughs> what about the doctrine of justification in church history? So let's split up church history into two parts, pre-Reformation and post-Reformation. Okay, that's basically the easiest way to do it. Um, but prior to the Reformation, what was going on with the doctrine of justification? Does anybody know um, what the state of the church was and what they thought on this doctrine? For example, what, what did the apostolic fathers of the church fathers or Augustine, or what, what were their ideas on justification to this point? You're essentially right, Paul. I mean, this is a huge thing. Um, you know, you know, the doctrine of justification all the way up to the the, the Reformation um, actually experiences quite a bit of confusion in the church. So we're talking massive swaths of church history. I was, I was thinking about this. This kind of landed on me with some weight as I was thinking about this, thinking like, wow, like, man, you know, the, the, the dark ages, right? Uh, that time period, which, you know, scholars kind of put somewhere between six to 1200, 
somewhere somewhere around there. I mean, they were really, really dark. I mean, it was a time. Talk about a famine in the land. Talk about darkness. That's why the the, the, the reformers the reformers when the Reformation hit, they had a slogan, right? Uh, what is it? Tanaberis Lux, post Tanaberis Lux, right? Uh, after darkness, light, right? Because they saw that the church was in this, was wallowing in this wasteland of theological darkness for the longest time because of the corruption of the of the of the Romish Church of the Catholic Church, which really became truly corrupt. So I would I would probably say somewhere somewhere after the Council of Chalcedon. So we're talking about after the 450 somewhere uh, into the sixth century. Definitely by the seventh century, you already have papal corruption. So <clears throat> uh, at this time, uh, the doctrine of justification uh, experienced remarkable confusion. Um, there's another reason for this, however, uh, and what I mean by remarkable confusion is that many of the church fathers, even Augustine, were confused on the doctrine of justification. What the essential confusion was is mixing justification with sanctification, saying that they're essentially one and the same, confusing them and getting the order mixed up. And uh, uh, maybe I can explain that. So, like, how did that happen, right? <laughs> I was like, well, heresy. Heresy uh, at this period of the church was not soteriologically um, based. Uh, what was the main heretical problems in the early church? Christological. Christological, no question about it, right? You have the Council of Nicaea in 325, and there we are debating the deity of Christ, and two scholars emerge, Athanasius, the Trinitarian, and Arius, the, uh, the Unitarian, the heretic who denied the deity of Christ, the preexistence of Christ. And so all the way through the successive centuries leading, leading up and then after Nicaea, the post-Nicaean and anti-Nicaean fathers, you have an emphasis on Christology above everything else. Uh, this, was, you know, this was the exact point that uh, Carl Truman made. How many of you guys saw my Google Hangout with Carl Truman that I did? Just a few of you. Okay, you can still watch it. It's okay. You can watch it. Um, but Carl Truman spoke at the Shepherds Conference on inerrancy, and he was given the task of inerrancy in church history. What gives? I mean, basically, that's what they were asking him. Explain what, what, what happened uh, you know, in church history, especially the Reformation. And you know what his answer basically was? It wasn't really an issue. <laughs> Sorry. You know what I mean? Uh, but it wasn't really an issue during the, the Reformation period. No, the Catholic Church really didn't question the inerrancy of Scripture. So we think like, inerrancy, <laughs> like, this is huge, right? But we go back in history and we realize the people at that time period, they weren't really struggling with it. It wasn't an issue. So sorry that you don't have a huge amount of information, right, with reformers struggling through or battling heretics on inerrancy or something like that. It just wasn't an issue. In some way, in the same sense, in the, in, in prior to the Reformation uh, and leading up to the corruption of, the, uh, 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 the corruption of, of Rome, uh, justification really wasn't the issue. Uh, but I tell you what, after, after the, um, 
after the Reformation, it certainly became an issue. And what it became an issue about had to do with what was known as infused righteousness. This idea that, um, that, that what justification is dealing with is God uh, making you morally righteous over a process of time. We understand justification to be a legal declaration once for all. Right? But Rome understood justification and the righteousness of God as something that you increased in little by little. And through the sacraments and through the sacerdotal powers of the church, meaning the priesthood, little by little you were imbibing more and more righteousness, but never able to come to a settled conviction that you had enough righteousness to be justified. Right? So just a couple minutes here. I know I'm kicking myself here, but uh, I just want to show you because never allow, when you're talking to Catholics, never allow Catholics to flip the script on you and say, oh, you're just attacking Catholics. You know, Catholics are the ecumenical ones. They're the ones that want to get along with everybody. Perish the thought. Let me show you. This is from the Council of Trent. This is... uh, Uh, chapter 16, canon 9 of their articles of faith, right? And this is what it says regarding justification. This is doctrinal uh, conviction of the Roman official doctrinal position right now. If anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Okay? And so they're attacking the very heart of the issue in the Reformation, which is the nature of the will, right? So let, let, me, let me make it clear. This is what it goes on to say. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also keyword increased before God through good works but that but that the said works are merely the fruit and signs of justification obtained but not the cause of the increase thereof let him be anathema let him be a curse so what's that saying guys <laughs> thank you Pastor Chris <laughs> Right. So what's that saying? Faith plus works. What's that? Saying that you're growing. Justification is a process. You're increasing little by little, getting more and more righteous. Right? And if you deny that it's a process, you are anathema. Right? So much for what Jesus said. So much for Jesus telling that man he went home justified. Right? No, no, he went home hoping that his justification will increase over time. <laughs> That's what he really meant to say. Right? Like me, I, I'm, I stand totally condemned. I have no justification for going over time right now. <laughs> so much so that I have to say I love you, but we're done. <laughs>